This is Generation Justice, a multiracial project that trains youth to harness the power of community through media, narrative, and critical consciousness. I'm Saeed Alejandro Latkers Yoyi. And I'm Sunny Santanam. Tonight, in this special program, we hear from Professor Tommy J. Curry. Professor Curry is the author of the book, The Man Not, Race, Class, Genre, and the Dilemma of Black Manhood, which won the 2018 American Book Awards. Dr. Curry presented his work at UNM this fall as part of the Cortez Williams Lecture Series from UNM Africana Studies. We also have some great calendar events and music for you, so stay tuned. That's right, starting with Glory by John Legend featuring Common, chosen for its message of love and unity and the fight for justice. The elders and young people's energy Welcome to the story we call Victory, the coming of the Lord My eyes have seen the glory One day When the glory comes It will be ours It will be ours Oh, glory Oh Professor Tommy J. Curry is the personal chair of Africana Philosophy and Black Male Studies at the University of Edinburgh. His research includes 19th century ethnology, critical race theory, and black male studies. Dr. Curry's newest book, The Man Not, explores and challenges the narratives of black men and boys held in history and academia. A warning to listeners, this conversation mentions sexual violence that could be triggering. Now... Here is longtime Generation Justice member Edgar Cruz speaking with Dr. Tommy J. Curry. This is Edgar Cruz with Generation Justice, and I'm speaking with Dr. Tommy Curry, a professor of philosophy and personal chair of Africana Philosophy in Black Male Studies at the University of Edinburgh. Dr. Curry, welcome to Generation Justice. Will you please uh, share with us how you would describe yourself, introduce yourself? Wow. Uh, there's not much to share. Uh, I, I came from... Uh, Lake Charles, Louisiana. I was born at the tail end of segregation in 1979. I think that very early in life, my mother told me that education was going to be my way out. That the way that you escape what you see every day in terms of racism and the separation of Black people and white people was that you get your education. Because she said, no matter what, education is something they can never take from you. And that's what I did. <laughs> I listened to my mom. So I went all the way from, you know, getting out of high school all the way to a PhD. And you know, I, I think back about it now, and there's so many brilliant Black people, men and women, you know, boys and girls that are from Lake Charles um, that didn't leave. And I think that a lot of people right off country, Southern, Black folk is not having really any insights in life. But I think that one of the things that motivates me to understand Black people the way that I do is because of those people. Because even though Black people have problems and Black people have violence and Black people have their conservative views on some things, Black people are beautiful people. And the things that we learn to hate are problematizing the academy is not about the people. It's about the environments that the people are in. And I think that when you can't separate what the world's created us to be versus what we are, then we just run the terrible, terrible risk of not believing that the dehumanization of the world that our oppressors have offered us is just an illusion. 
We've taken the, the poison, so to speak. And what we do is in the academy, because it's so geared towards white people's interpretations, schemas, and investments in the world, we've allowed them to have the same investments about our people that everybody else does. You know, and, and I think that the Black scholar has the responsibility, even if it doesn't change anything, to resist that in their work. That the impact of being an educator, that the impact of being a thinker, within these times especially, is to be able to separate the ideology from truth, the ideology from fact. And if we're not talking about facts and how those facts undergird the realities that we see, then we're not giving future generations any possibility for change, any possibility to do something with the knowledge of the previous thinkers. If everything's about blogs and hashtags, then we don't have any ability to inculcate in students a desire and willingness to do things differently. Because they're going to bend to public opinion, which is exactly what the hashtag scholar does. You say what the public likes because you know the public's going to boost you up. But what about the pursuit of truth? Are Black people not capable of being studied as if they're the products of a world that deserves serious scientific inquiry? And I think that that's the failure of our knowledge. That is what Black studies should be doing. That's what Black scholars should be doing. That's what Black scholars should be doing. Digital scholars should be doing. But we're not doing that because we've lost sight of the fact that it's from facts and the rigorous research into the study of our people and our problems that undergirds how people build from the future. We're too far too concerned with the now. Would you describe your journey to pioneering Black male studies? Part of Black male studies comes from a frustration, I think. You know, yesterday I gave a, a talk, a keynote, And I explained how when I was in graduate school, no matter how many feminism courses I took, none of them seemed to want to talk about Black men. I was constantly told when I asked questions about Black male victimization to violence or, you know, child abuse, et cetera, that those were not serious problems. And I guess that after I finished my PhD and and started engaging with philosophers and other scholars who told me the same thing, it upset me because I'm constantly looking at all this data I'm meeting all these Black men who are telling me because of my research, even on something like, you know, the rape of Black men during slavery, they're reaching out to me as, to tell me their stories of actually being raped in real life. And I hear all this pain. I hear all this suffering. And for a long time, I'll be very honest with you, I didn't, I didn't know how to deal with it. So my wife told me I should start writing it down in a journal because all these men were just telling me all this pain and all this abuse. And I didn't have a way to process any of it because I'm a philosopher. I'm not a clinician. So I'm just taking this in and I'm becoming frustrated. I'm probably becoming a little depressed. You know, I felt, I remember I was in my room one day, you know, reading about domestic violence and child abuse and I was on the brink of tears. And, you know, my wife came in and she told me, she was like, what's wrong? I was like, I just, I can't keep doing this. I can't keep having these black men tell me how they've been hurt by some by men, a lot of them by women as children, um, how their stories aren't being heard. And they just give me these stories and I listen, and then I forced to think about them. I was like, I have nothing to do with them but become upset and angry. And I think that the way that I learned to process that, the stories of, of Black male victims and the ignorance that we as a society have collectively to that kind of sexual vulnerability, was to start writing. And not writing just about them, but trying to create a way of thinking that could actually see them. And I think that that's what Black Male Studies tries to do. It's trying to see all the different relationships that Black males have in the world, that Latino males have in the world, that Indigenous males have in the world, that Jewish men have in the world, and say, why can't these be relationships and processes of study? What is it about being racialized that somehow cuts us off from humanity, just that nobody has a need to study who or what we are, what we want to do? We don't even have it. If someone asks, well, then what, what do young Black boys in this country imagine 
being a man is like. We have no research. Like we asked the young black boy, describe fatherhood. We have no research. We, we have no work on black men describing and creating theories from their own experience about what some of the most basic rubrics that we expect of society. And that to me is a testament to how we don't view them as part of society. We don't throw women into the world with no clue about motherhood. Right? We socialize and we talk to them. We, we have expectations. Some people completely reject it. You don't need it. That's completely fine. But there's a conversation about what the choices are. When we talk about young black and brown men, deadbeat dads, abandoned children, violent, promiscuous. So how do those create norms that we want our young racialized boys to aspire to? We have no positive project. We have nothing that creates the basis of values that we want people to attain if they're racialized males. We throw them to the wayside as if there's no content in their character, no hope or possibility in their cognition. That's not what I envision for the world. I think that Black male studies is a way to both study the victimization and then talk about the potential. How do Black and brown men deal with death and dying? How do young Black and brown men deal with sexual violence, right? What is the history of rape amongst Black men and Jewish men? Like, how are these things connected, right? Why don't we see the vulnerability and violence that's been exacted upon these groups as something that draws racialized men together and gives us insight into the racialized oppression rather than suggesting, as the oppressors would, that these people have no actual value in the world? You mentioned what it was like for you to hear the stories of pain that Black men were experiencing and then sharing with you because they felt you saw them, so they wanted to share their story with you. What advice would you share to maybe your younger self or a young person listening right now who is then learning about their own history and feeling that pain and then not knowing where to go with that history of themselves? I guess I would tell my younger self that there is a light at the end of the tunnel and that there is that you actually created something that has helped people. Uh, because I think that my younger self didn't believe anything would change, that there was just pain, there was just suffering. And before I created Black Male Studies, I couldn't see a way out. I couldn't see a way to understand or connect everything. So I think that my advice to him would be to do what you did, but know that something's going to click, that you're going to figure it out. And I think to the young writer, I would say, don't be afraid of the pain. What I often find with young racialized men, especially Black men, is they feel the pain and the the pain consumes them because the world won't recognize it. And a lot of the young Black men that I've dealt with, they give up. And I don't mean give up in the sense that they just throw their hands up. They give up because they can't see beyond the pain. They feel it so viscerally and, and the world hurts them. The people they care about, it hurts them because they don't care. They can't see how vulnerable they are. So I would tell those, those young black men, those young brown men who are dealing with these situations that the pain can help you grow. You just, you have to learn how to manage it. It is an insight into the world that will not end you, but you have to direct it. You have to understand that the pain that you feel from being ignored, the losses that you feel, the losses that you see of your friends who would be incarcerated or killed, that is something that the world wants you to say. And instead of you taking that on as if that's something that's going to destroy and crush your soul, that is something that you should write about. That is something that should drive you to study yourself and study your own people and study your circumstance. And one of the reasons that I think that so many of us leave and don't pursue education is because we can't see that connection. We can't see how getting a degree is going to help soothe our pain. And I think that if we give ourselves a chance, if we start believing in what we can create and not just what people tell us that we are, then we would do a much better job of managing what that kind of hurt that makes us broken. 
We're not broken. We're human beings. And because we're human beings, we feel, and this is what I mean, this is why we're not pathological. We don't do things in the world. We don't hurt other people and not feel that. People don't hurt us and we not feel that. We're not animals. But we don't have anyone that listens or tells us what to do with the trauma that happens to us when we're hurt. So when we're raped as young boys, when we're racially profiled, when people silence us and say we can't speak, we have nothing to do with all that frustration and anger. But the reason that I'm trying to create this is so that people feel that there is a space where people are going to listen. There, there's other men, there's other women that are like, look, the reason that you know Curry's going through all this hell now is so that you can have a literature that says, look, why don't you write the next book? Maybe you should create the next artwork. Maybe you can even just start talking to other people because what you're feeling about the world is not just your paranoia, but it's actually true. I think that that would do so much to help Black men, brown men, et cetera, because we... We're stuck in a world often by ourselves where all we see is loss. We see the people we went to school with killed or incarcerated. We see our lives precarious, that we don't know if we'll live today or tomorrow. When we do achieve, you know, and get our degrees, we see our options limited. We we always feel like they prefer everyone else but us. These are our experiences, but they tell stories of resilience and they tell stories of survival and they tell stories of possibility. And until we get a handle on what we are capable of and why that matters to human knowledge, we're going to still fall into this trap where we think that our environment or what people say about us or the theories that the Academy has about us is true. So our resistance is in our creation. So beautiful. Thank you so much for articulating what comes after the pain when that is where so many young men just get stuck. It's hard not to. I think when nobody wants to hear you, every conversation I have with somebody, you know, a, a black man, I find out, you know, that there's something happening. So at any point in time, I can talk to a colleague or I can talk to somebody on the street and they ask me what I'm doing and we talk about my work and like, yeah, I was molested. You know, they share that with me and they just drop it like that. And they don't say anything for a minute. And then if they open up more, it's a conversation about how nobody believed them, how their mothers didn't trust them, how it was a caretaker, how it was an older man, et cetera. And they're telling these intimate things about their lives, but it's a burden that they've carried around with them their whole life. And when people tell racialized men and boys, oh, just do better, they have no idea about the obstacles that they have constructed to protect themselves given what the world had done, has done to them. And until we have people that understand that, that allow them to write about that, that validate that, that makes that individual pain that they bury deep down inside of them social, where everyone can understand and then try to help them heal it and at least communicate it, we're just going to reproduce the pathologies that we have, Black men, right? And I'm saying that not because it's fatalistic, but I'm saying that because that is a call to academics, it's a call to Black studies, it's a call to Latino studies, etc. It is a serious call to do better in how you understand half of the people in your own communities. Because if you only validate the experiences that Black women have of these groups of men, or that society has of these groups of men, or certain privileged groups of these men have about these other groups of men, you're never going to empower them. 
You're not teaching them. What you're doing is you're teaching them to accept the ideological restraints that the society puts on them. You're teaching them not to fight against their oppression because you're saying the oppressive idea isn't bad in itself. It's just who says it. So if, if a white person tells you that you're, you're a vermin of trash, fight that racism. If your mother says it, if your wife says it, if your professor said it, listen to it. It's the issue. It's the content of the idea, not the speaker of it. So we have to become more aware of the ideas that are being used to dehumanize our people, specifically our young men, so that we have a better way to refute them and resist them. Dr. Curry, tell us about the man-not, race, class, genre, and the dilemmas of Black manhood. There's so much to say about it. I think that The Man-Not is an important book. But even, you know, I published it two years ago, wrote it three, I guess. There's some things I would change about it because I've learned more. You know, I think one of the things I would add at the end of the book, instead of just ending with the need to study Black men, is I would actually talk about this creativity. Because when I wrote the book, like I said, I felt all that pain. And my motivation was to get facts out and articulate them in such a way that they could no longer refute what racialized men went through. I was so tired of what Black men were saying being buried under somebody else's consideration. And I wanted them to see that this is not a fatal flaw. This is not an ontological flaw in Black men. This was a flaw in the societies and the environments they were raised in. So I think that the man not does that extremely well. I think that it, it knocks down all the obstacles and the ideological you know, roadblocks we have to seeing the humanity of racialized men. What I think it could have done better, though, was talk about the beauty and the creation of what Black and brown men have done. That, that is the visions of manhood and humanity, for instance, that started the Haitian Revolution. That within the discontent and the reality of death, it spurred political action and protest. Right, That you know, Black men saw not only themselves and how they envisioned the political but also the future generations of themselves, which is why they were marching for the education, not just for themselves, but for children. Those are the things that I think that deserve a whole chapter. And I think that when I rewrite the book or get to update the book, I'd put that and some of the other stuff I talked about today with intersectionality and what Bell Hooks has done. But beyond the problem, I think there is really the potential because, you know, like our men have just done such beautiful things. They've been great fathers. They've built communities. They've protected communities. I mean, imagine the courage and the bravery of groups of men who are told that they are trash and not men and as savages, not just taking up arms, but protesting, educating themselves, becoming lawyers to understand what's happening to their own people, right? Like fighting for their women to get across the segregation line, fighting and supporting Black women to have the right to vote. Imagine the courage that you have to have to do that, despite the fact that you are told every day that you are no higher than an animal or a piece of meat. And you saw beyond all of that. You saw beyond the law that told you that. You saw beyond the religion, the manipulation of God to tell you that. You saw beyond the master with the whip to say that you were different. That's something different. So that's, I think that that's the man not, right? It's not just the category. It's the creation of the resistance to the world that Black men and brown men and Jewish men and all these men who've resisted and given their lives have demonstrated for centuries. And Dr. Curry, how do you feel the experiences of Black men have been misrepresented or missed in gender and queer studies? 
Well, I think it's a complicated question. So I think gender theory has completely bastardized the way that Black men experience the world because it's already arrived at the conclusion before it begins studying them that everything they do is based on power and violence against other groups of people. So if you look at the world that way, then there's kind of nowhere else to go. So I don't, I don't think that there's much that you can do under that paradigm with Black men. I think queer theory is dishonest in a lot of ways about the roles that homoeroticism has played. So I think as in Black culture with every other group, there's homophobia. I think it's immensely important to make sure that the rights and the stigmas that affect, you know, uh, queer or queer Black bodies are up to par. That we're doing, because they're Black people, we need to make sure that we're doing right by them. But I think the line that's being sold that suggests that every straight Black man is a potential murderer of a gay Black man is false. And I think that queer studies has not done a very good job of truly investigating and revealing the extent that homoeroticism and white queer colonialists had in the repression of racialized men around the world. And that's what I mean, that when I say in my book that homoeroticism is an aspect of racism, I want to pull away from the issue of identity to see how these other processes of desire and power operate. So I'll give you a really good example. If the black slave is owned by a gay white man, whether or not the black slave is straight or queer is going to determine what that white man is going to do with his body. So if that's the case, if there's a vacuity of being in the enslaved position, the position of blackness under slavery, then what am I arguing about the identity of the slave for? Because the imposition of power from the white man makes the slave whatever the white man imagines him to be. And that part, right, how homoeroticism and the power that white gay men have historically had in relationship to black bodies is something that's hardly ever discussed. So I think that queer theory really needs to take a good look at how history plays out rather than simply relating itself to, again, pathological or hypersexual images of heterosexual black men. And again, as I said in the beginning, that's not to dismiss homophobia or violence, but it certainly needs to be contextualized within the specifics of the community. And again, you know, and, and I think this is a problem with us not having empirical fields. I mean, you know, black men are usually not more or less homophobic than women, and that only varies by education. So as black women become more educated and more middle class, they become more progressive. Black men don't usually have those same kinds of social mobility, so they remain kind of where black women start. But again, that's not pathology. That's social location, that's economics, that's religion, you know, church attendance matters in that situation. So we need to be, again, we need to be careful about why we think certain phenomena exist amongst our own people rather than other phenomena. So if we don't think Black people are progressive enough, then let's teach all Black people. Let's have that conversation. But if your argument is that homophobia only resides within Black men and it's a Black male problem, then, you know, that's not getting us anywhere because yeah. you think that they're fundamentally homophobic, so you're not trying to teach them to do better. And again, we've seen attitudes about homosexuality change over the decades, right? We've seen different progress. We've seen important things that have happened because of our understanding of homosexuality, queerness, and sexual fluidity, et cetera. If you think that certain groups of Black people are simply incapable of adjusting to their environment, then you've bought into a reductionist notion of what Blackness is. They're incapable of learning. 
And again, I just have problems with theories that assume that Black people are fundamentally problems that are in themselves. They cannot change. They cannot transform. Because I think if anything has been shown through the history of Black people, especially Black men, is that they're extremely adaptive to the situation at hand. You don't find a way out of slavery only to say that you're not learning from the world. You don't come out of Jim Crow without new strategies. You don't, you, right? You're getting the NAACP. You're getting the Thurgood Marshalls, the Derrick Bells, precisely because people are constantly learning to use the system towards freedom. To assume that Black people, especially Black men, are not intelligent people. They can't learn and change with their time and environment. It's, again, not only pathological, but I, I think that it, it reduces them to the level of the brute. It suggests that there's a savagery that exists within them that cannot be penetrated by reason, morality, or uh, any sense of obligation or coherence with their group. And I just think those theories are false. I think history testifies that, that those things are false. Earlier, you talked about the mythological state of Black gender and the narrative around Black gender. Tell us more about that. I think there's a comfort in defining Black men as mythical creatures of chaos and destruction, so to speak. Because to study them and find out that their theory is not true really throws into chaos the whole order of American institutions and civilization itself. Western civilization has always had the notion of the brute or the savage at its very basis. So when you think about enlightenment and the question of whether or not reason triumphs over nature, it's really the question of the savage and the brute. If you're looking at 19th century ethnology, there's you know people like Ariel's making the argument that the Negro is really the devil. You know, so throughout history, uh, black men especially have been constructed as being synonymous to evil and the undoer of Western civilization. Many of our contemporary theories aren't that far removed from that sentiment. They reproduce or they replicate that position of mythical orientation for Black men, that there's a mythos that suggests that Black men are, in fact, evil. They are deviants. They are dangerous. And that if you don't shackle or sanction them, some will go so far as kill them or incarcerate them, that they ultimately will destroy their communities. They will destroy the women and children in those communities because they're so violent. That's what I mean when I say that the mythos, the mythology, can't be penetrated through reason or data. Because if you fundamentally believe that Black men are killers of women and children— then no matter how much data I show you to show that, well, look, there's 44 million Black people in America. There's, you know, 24 million Black people that are adults. And out of all those millions, only 200 Black women have been killed by their spouses or their boyfriends, et cetera. You're not going to accept that as logical, right? That's less than half of 1%. And you're still not going to accept that in the realm of possibility. So what ends up happening is that you replace facts with fiction. Right. You you say that the fictive is what undergirds your interpretation and your mediates your relationship with black men and black boys. So ultimately, it's driven by your fear, your fear that one day the person that's going to kill you is going to be this black man, even though the chances of that out of, of the adult population is just so small. And that's not to say that these are not real issues in our community, but it's to say that how do you use. So, for example, like in a given year. 100 or 150 Black women kill Black men. Should I be afraid of every Black woman that I meet? Is she one of the 150? Is she the 151? You know what I mean? This is what I'm saying. What is it about millions that allows us to build caricatures of that population based on a few hundred? We have these real problems, and it's not because it's real in the sense that we think around the next corner is the Black man that's going to murder. It's just real in the sense that we think that in terms of our intimate relationships— 
Black men cannot be trusted to share a space, to share a home, to share a community with us because they're so dangerous. And that's what I mean when I say that even our most progressive theories, be they racial or gender-based, replicate the mythology of that totem, so to speak, that there is always the devil, there is always the deviant. And whether or not it's in white society or in our Black neighborhoods, we think that's the racialized male. We think that's Black men and boys. Dr. Curry, thank you so much. Is there anything else you would like to add? No, I think anytime you try to have conversations that are humanizing about oppressed people, I think someone's going to get upset. (laughs) You know, you can make your whole career just pathologizing your own people. You can make your whole career just, you know, studying white theorists and saying that they're correct. But the moment that you think differently and dare to say that the humanity of oppressed people, your own people, is more important than all the theories that have been, you know, compiled to explain them, people get upset. And I think that I would tell young scholars and young people that should inspire you to piss a lot of people off. Dr. Tommy Curry, thank you so much for Generation Justice. I'm Edgar Cruz. Thank you so much, Dr. Curry, for your impactful words on Black male empowerment and bringing awareness to the issues surrounding violence and abuse perpetrated against Black men. Thank you, Dr. Curry, for speaking with us. Your words carried such deep meaning about the violence and wrongdoings Black men face, but also the courage and resilience of Black men. Our next two songs are Black Men in a White World by Michael Kiwanuka, followed by I Owe You Nothing by Sainabo C, which were chosen for their message of black liberation and justice. I'm a black man in a white world. I'm a black man in a white world. I'm a black man in a white I'm in love, but I'm still sad. I found peace, but I'm not glad. On my nights and on my days, I've been trying wrong way. I'm a black man in a white world. I'm a black man in a white world. I'm a black man in a white world. I don't have to smile for you. I don't have to move for you. I don't have to dance, monkey dance, monkey dance, monkey dance for you. I won't help you understand I don't need no helping hand No, see, these are tears This is the ocean These are fears This is devotion It's time for our community calendar As a community, it is important to have an understanding of what is going on around us First, the UNM Women's Resource Center is hosting a support group for disordered eating. Oh yeah, that's such an important topic. This event will be on Wednesday, December 11th from 5.45pm to 6.45pm. And where is it taking place? The event happens at the UNM Women's Resource Center at Mesa Vista Hall at room 1160 on the UNM campus. Many people experience anxiety around food or struggle with disordered eating, and this event is a ticketless support group led by a mental health clinician. The group is open to people 18 years or older. For more information, you can visit the Resource Center on Facebook. And that leads me to our next event, which is the Valle de Oro Refuge Photo Contest. It takes place Tuesday, December 31st from 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. It will be located at the Valle de Oro National Wildlife Refuge at 7851 2nd Street Southwest in Albuquerque. 
The Valle de Oro contest invites photographers of all levels and ages to enter the contest, and they're looking for striking images of Valle de Oro that capture its beauty of the refuge, its wildlife, landscapes, and visitors. You can contact the Valle de Oro National Wildlife Refuge on Facebook for more information. And our last event of the night is Hoodies for the Homeless, hosted by La Placita Institute. The community is invited to attend and enjoy live local music, and folks are welcome to bring hoodies or warm clothing for the homeless. This is an all-ages event. And this happens on Saturday, December 14th from 3 p.m. to 9 p.m. at the La Placita Institute, located at 831 Isleta Boulevard Southwest in Albuquerque. That's it for our community calendar. Our next song is called Aboriginal by Lakota hip-hop artist Frank Walm, who raps about the pressure young indigenous men often feel. Troubles, I'm not the noble savage doing damage to the perception of who I am. Self destruct when I self construct my own plan of my identity from their affinity to rape the culture, they rape the land. Shaming in the end just to save the man, but this in the end never dies. I got this aboriginal soul, I got this aboriginal flow. We hope you've enjoyed this hour of liberation and community action. We'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Tommy J. Curry, and thank you to UNM Africana Studies. Tonight's Hour of Radio is produced by Kateri Zuni and Roberta Real, and thank you to our interviewer and certified engineer, Edgar Cruz. We want to give a big shout-out to all of our youth producers. We could not do what we do without you. Generation Justice would also like to thank KUNM for bringing the voices of young people to you, KUNM listeners. Our website is generationjustice.org, where you can check out all of our multimedia work and listen to our podcasts, which are also available on SoundCloud and iTunes. We're also active on social media. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd like to remind you that this program is being broadcast on stolen indigenous land. Generation Justice is funded by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation with additional funding from the Conalma Health Foundation. And of course, all of you who have contributed to our project by visiting our website and clicking donate. Our opening song is Youth of the Nation by P.O.D. Our last songs of the night include Colors by Black Pumas, followed by The Taker Story by Chicano Batman and River by Leon Bridges. My name is Saeed Alejandro Larquerzioi. And I'm Sunny Santanam. Coming up on KUNM is Spoken Word, so stay tuned and join us next Sunday at 7 o'clock. Good night, New Mexico.
Traveling these wide roads for so long My heart's been far from you Ten thousand miles gone